house. No, the right no, house. I did it. Get we want to talk to Marilyn Hack. I'm from Canada water. You've been stuck in the house for 20 years, cooking and cleaning. We're out of milk. You could be having an interesting life. I do have an interesting life. Well, all right! Frisk the Frigidaire, clean the cupboards, bear sandwich. That's a good one, Mom. You get to stay home writing in your stupid notebook. Those stupid notebooks are the only reason this family isn't living on the streets. Mrs. Ryan, you are our first prize winner. Mom. Frisk the Frigidaire, clean the cupboards, bear sandwich. Oh, baby. Anything growing in a foreign country. Does Hawaii count? Yes. You know what your problem is? I don't. You're too damn happy. Hello and welcome to the This Head Oscar Buzz podcast, the only podcast that tells the truth every single time, except that one lie that we snuck in that one time to see if you'd notice. Every week on This Head Oscar Buzz, we'll be talking about a different movie that once upon a time had lofty Academy Award aspirations, but for some reason or another, it all went wrong. The Oscar hopes died, and we are here to perform the autopsy. I'm your host, Joe Reed. I'm here, as always, with my Clean the Cupboards Bear sandwich, Chris File. Hello, Chris. Hi, Joe. Okay, so first question, what was the lie that we snuck in one time? I'm just going to let people try and figure it out. Oh, okay. I feel like this was a joke that we did. Was it? And it wasn't like an... Uh, no, I think that, uh, no, I think we made a joke one time that was like a bald-faced lie that we were clearly joking. Well, maybe I've outsmarted myself then, and we, we are sending our listeners on a wild goose chase to find the one great lie that we've told in our podcast we'll see it's true we'll see i also am uh my second point is i am a clean the cupboards bear sandwich but my question (laughs) for you was going to be what's your deli order what's my deli order like what yeah like what sandwich i'm i'm big on a tuna salad sandwich i know Uh, i'm a a trash person i don't Uh, trust things like tuna salad from a deli i'm very for whatever reason i'm very particular about mayonnaise things I'm that i big, have to I'm make not them a myself person generally they'll I sneak in miracle whip on the... you and you'd like and you won't be prepared for it and or, or like... it'll just be like some gross uh sludge substance that you're putting on bread and calling it a sandwich i am probably way too trusting with a tuna salad among the general populace and way untrusting with anything else so i am usually either a uh turkey cheddar lettuce mayo on a roll person or a um what's that that's so boring yeah i know sorry or i'm a chicken cutlet and swiss with lettuce and mayo on a roll person that's it i don't go for like i don't need the deli to like you know fancy up my life every once in a while maybe like a roast beef and melted mozzarella kind of a person but like rarely Mm. Rarely. If I'm going to go to a deli, I'm going to go very basic. Tuna loaded up with a shit ton of pickles and then like jalapenos. Oh, see, jalapenos on a sandwich doesn't do it for me. Oh, I love a crunch. I love a crunch. Give me a crunch. Just don't like burn out my mouth. Like, I don't need it. The most of the crunch, a sandwich with, with munch, jalapenos. That's my jingle. Third place. Um, 
Third place, I won five dollars. Five dollars. Um, a gift card to uh, Grater's Ice Cream or something. There's a lot of. I feel like growing up for me, I caught the sort of like the echoes of this version of like um, brand dominated sort of America. I feel like I caught the tail end of times when you would like send in a self-addressed stamped envelope for something or like um, send in like box tops from a cereal thing or uh, those those sort of commercials that would end with like the one eight hundred number that you would call and allow like six to eight weeks for delivery, and they would have for the commemorative little... coins, right? All of that kind of stuff was mm-hmm. still being advertised when I was younger, but it was like the like the echoes of this particular era of like nineteen fifties, early nineteen sixties, like sponsored by Calgon kind of stuff, right? Where, um. <laughs> It's an interesting, it's a very interesting era. There are certain things in this movie that we're going to be talking about today, the prize winner of Defiance, Ohio, that felt reminiscent of things like the, the I will, I will talk more at length, I think, I hope, about the supermarket shopping spree that she does, which is one of my favorite scenes in the movie, that reminded me so much that like when I was a kid growing up, Toys R Us would do, and I believe it was through Nickelodeon, oh my God. they would do a contest where the main prize was a timed shopping spree through Toys R Us. And I will tell you, there was nothing in my entire life that I wanted more than to win that Toys R Us shopping spree. The idea I absolutely entered in to win that shopping spree. Right? The idea of like running through Toys R Us and just like just and they would show it then after the person, the kid who would win it, and they would like televise the actual shopping spree and just like Those literally like pieces of shit running down the aisles and just like scooping everything you could into this like giant shopping cart. I never hated another child more in my life than seeing those kids that actually won the shopping spree i was like that little ungrateful bastard right they're not gonna love those thundercats toys the way i would love those thundercats toys exactly well and you would see the kids going through like the sports items aisle uh, <laughs> toys r us just nerf like, footballs as far you. as the eye can see <laughs> yeah did but, you have a strategy planned i had a strategy planned much like i'm Evelyn, sure i did I but i can't strategy. remember it now but yes that's my what... strategy was very simple <laughs> i was like i'm just gonna go to the vhs aisle and the action figures aisle and that's all I need. Yeah, I, I was like, really... the vid- I'm like, send me to the video game section, which would Maybe have been I complicated would have by the games because the video game section of Toys R Us was always stuff that was behind lock and key, and I would always wonder whether they would open that up for you or whether you would just need to like waste time, you know, whatever dealing with whatever workaround you had to do to buy video games at Toys R Us. But yeah, um, action figures would have been a big, big, big thing. Like I would have like literally just like gone to the GI Joe's aisle and just like cleared them all out. Like absolutely just like housed that entire, you know, local Toys R Us branch of every GI Joe's action figure they could possibly have. Um, and transformers and whatever, all of those cartoons from the eighties that were designed to sell products that absolutely worked because they sold products to me. Um, yeah, totally. Totally. I loved how she made like but she does the thing in prize uh in prize winner that you should do which is she strategized based on uh rarity um things that like oh we'd never be able to buy you know on a normal way and like strategized to like build up the like structural integrity of the cart with uh, like ribs and <laughs> the sides bacon of bacon as like the rim 
honest to god so so brilliant so fantastic and a great like uh, just a really funny scene the two sort of uh local ladies who help her out um are kind of a delight and so okay we'll get into that uh, you know at length we'll, we we'll loop back to that scene because it's wonderful it's wonderful i had never seen this movie before had you seen this movie before I had in college, I because like we'll talk about it. This movie had such a limited release. I drove to another city to see this movie. You would have had to. You would have absolutely had to. I drove like ninety minutes to see this movie. <laughs> I wouldn't have been able to see it in Buffalo. Absolutely not. Um, it never played on more than forty-one screens at a time ever. It made less than six hundred and fifty or less than seven hundred thousand uh, dollars at the box office. It is easily one of the um one of the lowest grossing films we've covered on this podcast. I should make that list. I should sort of go through sometime and make the list of the lowest grossing. Maybe that's one of those things where if an enterprising listener wants to help us out. I forget what the lowest grossing one is. I think there we did a movie that made like a hundred thousand dollars. Yeah. I forget what it no, was. but this is like clearly like got to be among them. Um, there are reasons for Could that. Ask the dust. Maybe. Let me look. That, that makes up. sense. Um, was Ask the Dust also this year, or was that 06? I think that was 06. I think it was originally supposed to be 05 and got pushed to 06. Yeah. Um, there are definitely reasons for the incredibly low-profile release and low uh, box office number. We'll definitely get into that. Um, but this was a movie that I've wa- I, you know, w- wanted to see, because of course I love Julianne Moore very much. But I think because it sort of came and went so quietly... Um, it never became essential. Like it, like it, 2005, you could get out of the year 2005 and sort of feel like you had watched the major movies of that year without having watched Prize Winner of Defiance Ohio, even though from a year ahead perspective, Julianne Moore in this movie was one of those contenders you'd put on a long list because, if mm-hmm. for no other reason, that it's Julianne Moore, she's doing her repressed 50s housewife thing. This is the last of those roles for her. Like from here on out, she'd start to um, sort of run counter to that. Interestingly enough uh, with her career where she's playing a lot more sort of um, troubled characters or women who are like uh, a lot less, you know, together. I think so many of her fifties housewives were that she was sort of like desperately trying to hold things together. And then like subsequently to this, she would be in movies like, freedom land or um a single man right where it's just like you know completely sort of messier um more less admirable i think you know movies like savage Savage grace Grace is one of those Mm -hmm. absolutely um even when going back to something like the kids are all right where annette benning is playing the sort of if not repressed then sort of like quietly unhappy of the two of them whereas like julianne moore's character is a lot more sort of actively struggling flailing to like do the right thing right messy yeah she's definitely the messier of the two of them so and something like crazy stupid love which is an episode that we've done before whereas like she is you know it's a thankless role she gets it. She's the wife, but she's the one sort of like acting out towards the beginning of that movie, sort of setting that plot into motion. So this is really kind of the end of an era 
for Julianne Moore, an era that, you know, basically is summed up by Far From Heaven, The Hours, and then this is sort of the the third in the in the trilogy. So mm-hmm. I was pleasantly surprised by this movie. I started off very, very dubious of what this movie was doing. There's a lot of sort of uh, cheeky structural stuff. She's narrating her own story, but she's also like appearing in these little like vignettes about... I wouldn't go so far as to say the movie is like camp, but there is a certain tonal quality to it where it's like... It's trying to play off of the kind of vibrancy of these jingles and, like, incorporate it into this, like, true story narrative. We'll talk about writer-director Jane Anderson uh, later on, too. And I feel like she... There was a lot of ambition in her. She had done a bunch of uh, TV movies for mostly HBO, some of them for Showtime. Um, And I felt like there was a... There was an ambitious attempt to be very cinematic in this and be very sort of like, you know, quirky and sort of meet the subject matter of the film at a very, at a, on a very kind of, uh, impressionistic level. Right. Mm-hmm. And it still feels like there's a hesitancy there where it doesn't really go full boat. And I'm not sure if it's a better movie, even if it does sort of go fully there, because I don't know if, I don't know how successful those little interludes are. They're cute. I think there's a lot of this movie that's like, it's cute. It's like, I think ultimately it is. Yeah, it's a very sweet and tender movie. And yeah, there's moments of it, especially with the group of women that she becomes involved with yes. that are also jingle writers and um contesters yeah that feels like it's kind of um i don't want to say cutting but like uh maybe a little bit more on the campy side or a little bit more cheeky with the woman like, in the iron of, lung yeah yeah yes um but also just like the kind of dynamic between those women is a lot of fun in a way that feels like it's taking yes i don't want to say it's obviously not like to john waters extent but no or to like even a tim burton effect but there is this kind of archness to those scenes that's tim burton's not a bad comparison actually like tim burton would have like zeroed in on you know what was sort of phony and false about a lot of this whereas this movie big eyes kind of wants to be what this movie is. You're not wrong. You're actually you're not, you're actually that's a really interesting really interesting note on this. I subject. mean maybe this big eyes is more ambitious or like really wants to like hammer the things that this movie does more subtly. Yeah. But like that's maybe the comparison I would make. Yeah. So anyway, we'll get into all of that. I also want to talk about how the Woody Harrelson character, I sort of started off thinking, well this is this is fairly broad. You know, this is fairly unsubtle. Mm-hmm. And yet the way that the film deals with his character and has the other characters deal with his character ends mm-hmm. up becoming, I think for me, very effective by the end of the movie and seeing where it goes and seeing what relationships this movie really values and that kind of a thing. And it kind of avoids a lot of the like broad, I mean, like this movie is fairly broad, but like in yeah. a way that movies like this tend to play characters like his, it, 
tends to, you know, not really allow for the type of nuances that this movie is maybe more interested in, and in, like in terms of his dynamic with his children. It's and up to how more views him. Yeah, it's up to more interesting things that I sort of initially gave it credit for in its first half hour. So I ended up, you know, liking this movie. I would recommend this movie to people, especially if you really like. Yeah, Jimmy I like it a lot. <laughs> I enjoy this movie. Um, so. Why don't we hop into a, a fairly early for us, 16 minutes? Are you kidding me? My God. Um, plot description for uh, the prize winner of Defiance, Ohio. And then we can get into sort of the basics about what we're talking about. It's an interesting story. It is based on a uh, a true story. Um, and uh, yeah, we'll uh, we'll hit the ground running. So... We're talking about the 2005 film, The Prize Winner of Defiance, Ohio, directed by Jane Anderson, also written by Jane Anderson, based on the memoir by Terry Tough uh, Ryan, uh, one of the characters, one of the children in this film, um, starring Julianne Moore, Woody Harrelson, Laura Dern, Ellery Porterfield, Trevor Morgan, Simon Reynolds. It opened... Uh, in limited release on September 30th, 2005, and stayed there. Stayed very, very limited throughout its entire run. And, uh, yeah, that's it. The cast is very big, but it's not really full of, um, names beyond, you know, Julianne I and Woody. I think the and number is there's over 20 child actors in this movie because you see their 10 children yes. across multiple ages. Yep. Yeah, there's, there's, again, it's a big cast. But, and even like a lot of like the, her neighbors and stuff like that, like not a whole lot of like, normally I'm somebody who like will feast on a character actor buffet. And it's not really populated with a lot of uh, character actors that I really recognized. Uh, even mm-hmm. the, the, the like, what was the name of her little, uh, I keep, I said, a quilting bee, but with words. You know what I mean? It felt very quilting bee uh, esque. <laughs> um, the I forget the name of the group. Shit, I'm gonna have just to... watched it this morning. Um, I'll get it. I'll get it. It's uh, are they not gonna give it to me in the plot description on Wikipedia? You fucks. Um, that's so they annoying. Forgot it too. Whoever wrote that. Yeah. Jesus. Anyway, something with an A. I feel like. Anyway, um, loved them, but like I'm, I was surprised that like beyond Laura Dern, she was the only really familiar face that I saw there, as mm-hmm. well. Anyway, are you ready for one minute to talk about the plot of the prize winner of Defiance, Ohio? I am. All right, Chris, if you are ready, we will begin now. All right, we follow Evelyn Ryan, who is a real woman who lived with her husband, uh, Kelly, who was an alcoholic, and um, they had 10 children in Defiance, Ohio. She helped support their family while their husband was a machinist and spending a lot of their money on booze uh, by entering jingle contests and various contests, promotional prizes um, from from, various corporations and companies. She would be winning things like uh, freezers, um, uh, shopping sprees, and a lot of money that helped pay for things like milk and like larger expenses like their home um and anyway eventually kelly uh secretly puts their house up for a second mortgage doesn't tell her and she only finds out when they need like four thousand dollars to pay off the second mortgage within like 30 days eventually she ends into what is seen as like the last big contest because these corporations are moving away from them uh, from dr pepper and she wins the contest luckily pays off their mortgage sends their 
kids away to various places. Two of them become baseball players. Uh, one's a nurse. Uh, Tuff Time is the character that up. we follow the most because she writes the book and uh, she becomes a writer. All right. Very good job, Chris. A. Also, I, while you were doing that, I looked up <laughs> the answer to the little the name of Laura Dern's little uh, little group because it was going to bother me. Otherwise, they're called the Affidaisies, which... Don't they have a second name? I thought they had a name starting with C. No, it's like there were there were it was a con there were there were a contester club. There were contesters oh, okay. that was they sort of like call, yeah. which I sort of also loved, and that was a term that Julianne Moore's character sort of introduces in the beginning about like you know this was this was definitely uh, totally by the rules in the world of contesting. She talks about like the contesting world a lot, which, right? Because she enters in multiple entries under her children's names too, right? Right, which and again. A lot of the things that I love the best about this movie are when it gets into this sort of this subculture of contesting, right? This idea of Mm -hmm. there is money to be had and, you know, advantage to be claimed from the corporate culture, the sort of consumerist culture of the 1950s that was advertising to, you know, housewives and, you know, sort of recognizing that they were the purchasing power in their families and sort of by pitching to them and sort of trying to engage them on this level of contesting. And that if you really like took this seriously and really, you know, tried for it, that you could in a non scammy way. That's what I also love is that all of this is above board. She's not scamming. She's not like, Adam Sandler punch drunk love trying to like, you know, get one over on the pudding company kind of a thing. Right. She hasn't found a loophole in the system. She's playing by the rules. She's just incredibly talented and driven to do this because this is her option. She has 10 kids. She's got a shitty fucking husband and they never have enough money. And this idea she wins by gumption and wit and it's sort of this idea that like because of this these like pennies from heaven just sort of keep arriving for them at their most opportune times but it's not by accident and it's not by you know provenance or whatever it's because she works hard and she you know she has found the avenue that she can best contribute to as a mother of 10 and well, and like you see in like the origins of her character that she has this kind of writing and like marketing prowess too. Right, she's that, incredibly like, smart. It's clearly a passion of hers too. So you do get to see this woman who's a real woman as this character in this movie, um, who has like a life of her own that is a passion of her own. That like that also includes her children, but like she is her own fully invested character. So it is very. Um, rewarding in the way that we often think this type of uh, finger quotes housewife role is unsatisfying in so many other ways but like that still kind of pops up throughout the movie and I think it's a subtle movie so it's not hammering you over the head with this where it's like she's still entering poetry contests but like those prizes are like three dollars five dollars and like that doesn't necessarily she even has a line at some point that she kind of like writes off those type of contests because they're doing less to support her family. Right. And like, I think we as naive audience members are like, well, but why isn't she being a poet? And it's like, she, she is, she's just her. being a poet for 
you know, Marketing. Dr. Pepper. <laughs> right, exactly. Right. She's writing these little jingles. Where she'd probably have a bigger audience and, like, she gets bigger prize money and she gets even more joy out of that. Well, and one of the great things about the scene where later in the movie, and the movie really does make us wait for it. On one level, part of me feels like I want to gripe and be like, we should have gotten to the affidavies sooner because it's such a great, it really opens up the movie for Evelyn, for the Julianne Moore character. And yet, I think the movie making us wait for it really makes us feel how desperately Julianne Moore needed that kind of fellowship and camaraderie and the fact that they all can sit in a living room and critique each other's jingles and talk about little like tips and tricks in order to do well and they all support each other's success i was very worried when they introduced the laura dern character that she was going to turn out to be sort of sweet on the outside but sinister on the inside and she was going to end because up because we've seen that movie so many we've times we've seen that movie so many times that she was going to end up making her making Julianne more feel more uh, alienated than ever that these other women or like steal one of her jingles exactly or... exactly right and i think i was so relieved and also kind of delighted that the movie made the other choice which is we are going to show you what actually being supported by her peers would do for her would sort of you know Mm -hmm. what an oasis that was because she had this terrible husband who and i think a lesser movie too could have just as easily not included that chapter of her life right right exactly and i was really glad that it and it also again the journey getting there wasn't easy it like in very literal terms like she and and tough are driving out there and the car breaks down because the fan belt was worn because shitty Woody Harrelson didn't have it replaced or whatever. And it gives after years of canceled plans to meet them in other terms. And like, it takes years for her to meet these other women who are 90 miles away. Right. Exactly. And so, but it also gives, you know, Evelyn and tough to have this really, you know, wonderful little scene together. And, again, sort of opens up another avenue of just like, oh, this is a major theme of this movie, this sort of like legacy legacy she's handing off to her daughter. I didn't realize that this movie was based on Tuff's memoir, the real-life mm-hmm. Tuff's memoir, until the end of the movie. It made sense once I realized it, but I was sort of glad that I didn't because I think the emergence of Tuff as the child that's the sort of the most important narratively uh, to the to the film is kind of a lovely revelation that this girl who clearly I texted you last night I was like I love Julianne Moore's lesbian daughter in this movie and it's because she's like she's very sort of like she's you know she's quirky she's got like you know she's got glasses and short hair and she's you know, she's I'm not sure if Terry Ryan is queer, but at least in terms of the movie, is very queer coded in the movie. Exactly. Um, and and I I mean, goes beyond. I think even like I think I was maybe making you know glib little joke, but also it's just like she is this like capable, like incredibly capable girl who's like obviously very independent and obviously has very. Uh, definite ideas about her father and like you know this she comes of age as like this as the story hits a certain narrative point too so she does take 
in terms of all the other children, she takes the most weight. It's not just the type of thing where right. it's like, well, this is the child. And maybe they fudge some of the, like, timeline of it. Right. But, like, it's not like, well, this is the child who wrote the book, so they're the most important. But it is, like, she's able to have certain conversations with her mother that are yes. narratively important when they have And the fact that right? she's not the one narrating the story, I think, is a real benefit to the story because it mm-hmm. doesn't become this, like, my mother, you know what I mean? I, I can hear Alison Lohman from White Oleander just talk about, like, my mother. <laughs> um, my mother said we were Vikings. Yeah, exactly, um, right? It, well, I think also having Evelyn as the narrator of the story or giving this very, like, fourth-wall-breaking kind of, like... um Almost like I felt a little bit like uh, the type of device that Marielle Heller uses in like A Beautiful Day in the Neighborhood. Uh, it allows um, like Evelyn's kind of perspective and her tone with how she dealt with all this adversity to kind of control the tone of the movie, too. Yeah. It never becomes too like harrowing or, you know, the like grimmest version of this movie that you can imagine. But it's also like it's not too sickly sweet either right right? it's just very like the go ahead the one of the big through lines in the movie is how sort of unfailingly um positive cheerful like up whatever word you want to use she for somebody who has the situation that she's in 10 kids scraping by constantly humiliated by this asshole milkman once a week um and like a emotionally abusive if not like i think the fact that woody harrelson's character is not physically abusive is attributable probably to the fact that it is a true story and you don't want to make somebody into physic a physically abusive person when he wasn't but also um it allows that character to not go beyond a certain point of you know, at a certain point, it would have been too much, I think, if he's hitting her or hitting the kids to sort of justify a narrative that keeps him around that long without it becoming tragic, a tragedy. Well, right? and again, it I feel like with his character the movie itself is trying to adopt evelyn's perspective right because it's very clear of like just in in how she handles him too uh, with like (laughs) notes of forgiveness while also still holding him accountable it makes a very clear point of like he used to be a singer and then had an accident that he could no longer sing and she says in the movie quite literally uh he lost his voice while I got to keep mine. Yeah. And it's like, it's a dynamic that like is probably truthful, but at the same time, I don't think the movie necessarily forgives him for any of his bad behavior. I don't think it does either, but it, but it at least opens the door to keeping him around without you getting too frustrated with the movie. You really do understand um, why. And she articulates herself very well in that scene at the uh, gas station when the car breaks, uh, breaks down with uh, with Tuff, it was a scene that reminded me a lot of, speaking of Laura Dern, that scene in Wild where Reese Witherspoon is just like, how can you possibly remain optimistic about any of this stuff? Don't you understand? Don't you see what's going on? And Tuff essentially says the same things to her mother. She's just like, this man ruined your life. Like, he abs- like he's, you know, 
deep six this family time and again and you had this you know promise when you were young and now you got saddled with 10 shitty kids and like she says that about like herself and her siblings and julianne moore's answer is very similar to what laura dern's answer is in wild which is it's not that i don't see it it's that wallowing in that doesn't do me any good and ultimately if i can be thankful that I have my children and be in the moment where I get to have, even though, you know, our shitty car broke down. Now I get to have this moment with my very sort of independent minded and wonderful daughter. And both of those scenes sort of like hit me in the same way where I love when a character can articulate their circumstances that you as an outsider might see as sad or weak or pathetic or whatever, and come at them from a position of emotional strength is really like that hits me in a good spot. Well, and it's also like characters that I think we as people, like whether we're watching a movie or it's just people in life that you're like, why would they just, like you feel like they're rolling over and just taking the lot that they're given, but characters that actually revealed, no, I'm making a conscious choice and I have from the options. This is something that I actually choose. Yeah. And for as much as we talk about how the movie does, I think a good job as it, especially as it goes along of humanizing, rounding out sort of explaining the Woody Harrelson character better. That does not mean that he is a likable character. I don't think he's supposed to be. I have rarely hated a character on just an, um, the level of, you know, being invested in the movie, hated a character as much as I've hated this Woody Harrelson character. I, every time he did something or said something rotten or wasn't properly appreciative about something or like stood in the corner eating his fucking Hormel while the rest of the family gets to enjoy their hearts of palm from the, the, you know, chopping spree or whatever. Because of his naked resentment. Just of her naked, toxic masculinity, like, uh, like emasculation perspective. Like who fucking needs it? I was, I literally wrote down. Um, and this was halfway through the movie. I said, I want this army of children to rise up and murder this man. And that's absolutely... I mean, they kind of They do. kind of like, do! That's the it thing! It does reach a yes. certain point in the movie where it's like, even the younger children are just highly uh, aware and articulate yes. to the way that, you know, seven-year-olds can be what his failings are, and they're very aware. They are not shy about expressing how much they don't like this man, and I kind of love that. And... I will say, I do think it's too... Because, like, you're just kind of talking about your uh, naked disdain for this character. I think it's to the credit of Woody Harrelson's performance that it doesn't seem like this type of cliche character that we usually see in these type of, you know, uh, failing father roles. Um, That it just feels like the same note over and over again. I do think Woody Harrelson gets into the psychology of this man in a way that feels like interesting to watch and not like again not the cliche but like is actually trying to get at the psychology of what makes him constantly make these failing decisions well and there are moments where he'll be you know sort of going on a roll about something and he's throwing 
you know, perfectly good stakes out into the backyard and he's acting out and he's being a, just a, just an emotionally abusive monster, right? And then somebody will say something or like the part where he's like, you know what your problem is? You're just too damn happy. And literally the children and Julianne Moore laugh in his face about it. And you were just like, oh, this could go so wrong. But then he like relents and sort of, and plays it off almost as if he intended to say something funny the whole time. And like, there are moments where he, his facade will break or his, resolve to be the world's worst person will like break down for a second and he just like takes a break from being the absolute worst and it's interesting it's it's it makes for a more complicated character again not necessarily a more likable one but a more complicated one and one where again we can sort of then be on this journey with julianne Moore without constantly just being like she's got to get away or else she's going to die. You know what I mean? Like that mm-hmm. kind of a thing. There's a moment after the one, the one moment that it gets the most sort of physically perilous where he is haranguing her about the milk delivery. And she, he, I, she either like tries to like, he grabs her arm and she tries to yank away from him or one of those things or whatever. And she goes spilling into the, onto the living room floor and the milk bottles shatter and her arms, her hands get all cut up. And she comes home from the hospital. And that's the one where, like, it's the most tense. The children are the closest at that point, I think, to taking little knives out and stabbing him to death, and justifiably so. Um, She goes to the hospital. She has to, like, get out of her wet girdle, which is just the saddest phrase in the entire world. Like, I have to get out of this wet girdle. Somebody, And she needs him to help her because he's the only only one who can. Yeah, she says as she's leaving for the hospital, the thing I'm most mad about is I'm probably carrying a quart of milk in my girdle. I sucked up a quart of milk into this girdle, which is such a phrase. Like, what a turn of phrase. But then, so she gets home and he's helping her out. And they're, like, sort of talking over what has happened and what, you know, this dynamic between them. And he's talking about how he feels emasculated by the boys at the factory, because whenever she wins a thing, they make fun of him for not being the real breadwinner in the family and yada, yada, yada. Toxic masculinity is a prison. And then she just says, it's a fantastic line. She says, I don't need you to make me happy. I just need you to leave me alone when I am, which is so, I don't know. I was really struck by that phrase. Mm -hmm. Because that's the thing. It's just like, she didn't need him to make her happy. Like, she didn't, you know, she was doing okay. She's doing okay. She's helping this family get by. She is not, you know, she's not complaining that they don't have, you know, that they can never do anything, that they can never go out to eat or go on vacation or whatever. She just needs him to let her continue to find her own happiness in this world and Mm -hmm. to not fuck it up for her. And I don't know. It was really good. I mean, I think if there's people in the audience still wondering why she accepts or stays with uh, this man through all of this turmoil and like constantly, you know, cleans his figurative diaper when he, you know, continues to ruin the situation for them. I think that scene and that line definitely clarifies it for the audience what the dynamic is what her perspective is on her marriage and life 
But man, in a way that, like, I think on the surface, the way people probably approach this movie wouldn't expect that type of nuance. Yeah. Um, yeah. But yeah. Yeah. Um, and again, I just want to talk about how, what an interesting little slice of American life we sort of like peek into here, which is this kind of consumerist, you know, consumerist uh, angle on getting by as a housewife, right? Where, like, everything... Mm -hmm. And, like, it's not like she's winning these, like, cash prizes either all the time. Sometimes she does. But sometimes she wins, again, like, this, like... A pony that they sell The pony that they sell, the car, the, like... A palm tree that is not going to grow in Ohio. Right, exactly. Like, all of these things, it's just, like... and, And she just, like, she will enter whatever contest because... Even if it's, you know, not much, it's something. It's a year's supply of, you know, whatever, uh, some inessential like, toothbrushes or something like that. It's not that, but, like, there's another thing where it's just, like, um, or, no, bird seed. That's what it was. We got a lifetime supply of bird seed. And it's, like, that's not really, like, an essential need that you had. But it's just, you know, it's these, you know, little bits. And sometimes she can sell things and sometimes... It's just, you know, like these little luxuries like the shopping spree, which was, again, they have this like feast, essentially. She's such a good mom. God, she's such a good mom. (laughs) She's such a good mom. But like, it's also like you talk about like birdseed and it's things that are not essential to their life. And maybe they can find use for it. They can find, uh, you know, financial uh, gain from it. But it's also just like these constant signs of her abilities and her mind and her like artistry, basically. But some of it, too, is things that like she's entering these contests out of necessity, things like the freezer. They She enters a contest because one of the kids breaks a window and she wins a free window. So it's like, There were these, I mean, like, I hesitate to say resources, but for this, like, contesting culture, you know, there were ways to find, uh, or there were avenues to to provide for your family. um, I kept thinking of... That she, you know, made the best of. I kept thinking of the phrase, pennies from heaven in this, which, again, like, the opening credits are even this sort of, like, animated, like, coins falling from the sky. And I grew up decidedly middle class not not like this level where like you're sort of you know struggling to make ends meet at the end of every month kind of a thing but like we never really had money you know what i mean we would be able to like scrape together enough to like take a family trip somewhere um or and not to any place like we never were able to do like the disney world thing that a lot of you know people i grew up doing um and we were never like we were never in peril but we were never flush let's say that way and my parents would always sort of mention every once in a while something would come along and whether it's you know a uh, you know, a second job that, you know, my mom or my dad would be able to get or a, you know, my dad would won like a, you know, a raffle prize somewhere that was like a thousand dollars or something like that. And just these little moments and they would always talk about, you know, like pennies from heaven kind of a thing. It was just like whenever, you know, 
we, you know, maybe seem to have, you know, had this need. There was always a way to make something work. And mm-hmm. it really, watching this movie really made me think about that kind of thing. And just the perseverance of that and the, um, I don't know. And again, just this sort of, just like this unfailing, unfailingly positive attitude from Julianne Moore's character, which is... Like, even, like, the, you know, again, the scene after the shopping spree where we're ha- they're having this little feast and Woody Harrelson is throwing his little, little temper tantrum in the corner. And she, while trying to, like, manage him at the same time, is trying to, like, get her kids to try capers and caviar. And you know what I mean? And just sort of, like, and talking about how, you know, there's a Bite link. There's a link between uh, intelligence and... And, um, and an openness to trying new foods and sort of just like trying to like impart these little lessons on our kids and trying to raise kids who will then sort of go out into the world. And I think one of the things about the postscript to this movie, where we find out all of these kids, they didn't like go to like Paris or India or Hong Kong or whatever, but like they sort of settled across on the, all the sort of far corners of the continental United States in incredibly different jobs. That was the other thing that I was Mm -hmm. sort of like struck by is, and a lot of times you would get a postscript where like this person was a cop and now they teach grade school. This person, you know, did this job for a while and now they're living here doing this. And it's always just like these people with, you know, an ability to sort of seeming ability to sort of like nimbly sort of go with the flow and well, an ingrained sense of prevailing adventure and curiosity, I guess, yeah. that like is clearly imparted in terms of how Evelyn is presented in the film. Yeah. So let's, unless you have anything more about the story itself to talk about, and obviously, you know, throw that in. We can throw that in wherever, but maybe we want to pivot to the sort of meta story of the prize winner of Defiance Ohio as a film that barely got released. And as DreamWorks is dying and this is the uh, thing, this was this movie got caught in the death rattle of DreamWorks uh, DreamWorks films, DreamWorks uh, pictures um 2005 was a rough was a rough one for dreamworks but the thing is if you look at 2005 on paper you could see like oscar success financial success but at this point in dreamworks's history they were kind of hemorrhaging money to the point where it's like all these movies that they had like even matchpoint i don't think it uh, listed online but matchpoint was also distributed by weinstein co right all of their successes at this point were co-productions. War of the Worlds was with Paramount. They, co- uh, they they partnered up with Universal on a ton of things. Including Munich this year, which was like the DreamWorks, finger quotes, Oscar success this year. Right. And so the interesting corner of uh, that prize winner of Defiance Ohio occupies is, and I had never, I had no familiarity with Go Fish Pictures until I was sort of looking up the stuff about this movie and Mm -hmm. essentially go fish pictures was intended to be dreamworks's um art house dependent 
shingle, right? It was going to be their the focus of Dream. The Wars, focus, the... their Fox Searchlight, their Warner. And this was obviously the time where all of the studios were trying to establish their independent shingle. This was the time of Warner Independent and Paramount Vantage, Paramount Classics. Um, they all needed to have one, and I think DreamWorks, wanting to play with those big contenders, wanted to have their own little shingle as well. So in 2000, um, they founded Go Fish Pictures and didn't really release anything until 2003. So they have their first initial successes are these two animated films from uh japan i believe they are both japanese films they're both anime yeah both anime films millennium actress which i do remember hearing about and ghost in the shell 2 innocence which i also remember getting like a theatrical release which i was like surprised by but um and they had like on these sort of like modest level both of them were successes the kinds of successes a sort of indie shingle like this would have in its early going right the kinds of things that can you know spur on greater success and then their next film that they release in summer of 2005 so only uh, a month or two before prize winner of defiance ohio is The Chum Scrubber, which I always use as shorthand for mid-aughts indie... Independent cinema that is not real. Right. Well, but I remember I saw this movie. I was... Also, I remember I that, that The Chum Scrubber and Thumbsucker were movies in the same year, both starring uh-huh. uh, Lou Taylor Pucci. Actually, he's a supporting player in The Chum Scrubber. He Chum is- Scrubber falls into the abyss with like Dear Wendy and the United States of Leland. United States of Leland, for sure. Where it's like interchangeable movies. So The Chum Scrubber is the absolute epitome of mid-aughts, um, what these sort of like indie filmmakers had to say about the world that like added up to so little in the end. So it's a, it, it's a Sundance movie in 2005. It's uh, directed by Ari Posen and um, it's, and Jamie Bell is in the lead of it. And of course I love Jamie Bell. The cast is like kind of amazing. Ray Fiennes is in it. Glenn Close is in it. Allison Janney, William Fickner. Um, this I think was the first movie that sort of introduced Camilla Bell. Remember that sort of small little era where they were trying to make Camilla Bell happen? Oh boy. Um, I think she was also in the Ballad of Jack and Rose, right? Which was the same year. Um, anyway, um, this is like, California, like Southern California suburbs and everybody's parents like don't get it. And all of the kids are on prescription drugs and, and it's just like, Oh, look at, are you, are you scandalized? All the kids that you know are, you know, are hooked on Ritalin or whatever. And they're taken, uh, you know, is this the teen suicide one or is United States of Leland the teen suicide one? I mean, they're both. This one starts with the suicide of the drug dealer, of the high school drug dealer, and sort of this is the fallout of all of that. And, um, but I think United States of Leland is also about Ryan Gosling's character who tries to commit suicide. And also, Wrist Cutters, a love story is about like teen, like, yeah, it was a like 
big one. Big, big theme. So anyway, I remember very, very little about the actual plot of the movie beyond the fact that the drug dealer commits suicide at the beginning of the movie. Um, it is a disaster for Go Fish. Um, it has a production budget of $10 million, which is hysterical. Um, makes even less than what prize winner of Defiance Ohio made. Prize winner of Defiance Ohio was Probably like... Probably in less theaters. Very possible. Let me follow that little rabbit hole down for Box Office Mojo. You useless piece of shit where it's giving me a requested page not found. Fine. Fine, Box Office Mojo. The hellacious abyss of uh, Box Office Mojo. Anyway. The shambling corpse of Box Office Mojo. It makes $350,000, which is, again, a little more than half of what Prize Winner of Defiance Ohio ends up making. And it essentially kills... GoFish Studios. Now, the fact that as DreamWorks, its home studio is already hemorrhaging. This money. is the thing: is a studio that was on better, like less shaky ground, wouldn't have been able to get murdered by one Sundance acquisition that doesn't make any money. Like norm, a, a, you know, a healthy studio doesn't get killed by that. But because DreamWorks was also, you know, uh, on on the ropes at this point. Um, and GoFish had never really, in the five years that it had actually existed, really done much of anything, you know, with the exception of, you know, these two anime films. Um, they were just like, well, then you're done. And, and, and whatever other independent movies were in the works at the time, no pun intended, um, sort of reverted to DreamWorks and prize winner of Defiance Ohio was one of them. And I'm trying to see what else was going on around this time that might have also had that same fate in terms of indies for DreamWorks. I mean, possibly The Last Kiss, which is the last non-Paramount, before Paramount fully took over DreamWorks. Right. Um, The last, like, DreamWorks itself movie. But like at this point, they're getting producing partners for like Memoirs of a Geisha, um, Munich. I think they sold all of the foreign rights to the island, which of course still lost them. The island was another disaster. That's the other thing is the island had a lot of this stems from them losing more than a hundred million dollars on that Sinbad yes. animated movie I was no one bring ever that talks up. about anymore. Yes, exactly. They lost over a hundred million dollars on that movie and it's just kind of all spiraled from there. Yes. So not long after this, DreamWorks essentially gets bought by Viacom and sort of gets pulled in under the wing of Paramount Pictures. And I honestly, if you asked me in what like how DreamWorks exists today, I don't know if I'd be able to tell you. Do you know it's what I mean? It's basically been rolled into Amblin. Like, you know right. how you've seen way more movies with the Amblin title now? Yes. They've basically been rolled up into that, but you're probably not going to see unless it's like DreamWorks animation. Right. DreamWorks you're animation was fully, at some point, fully like became its own thing to get it out to disconnect from the anchor that was uh, DreamWorks Pictures. Uh, Dis- mm-hmm. DreamWorks Animation was the only one that was really doing anything successful. And so to sort of let it live, it uh, it disconnected from 
the rest of DreamWorks. But yeah, like DreamWorks is a production company on the trial of the Chicago seven and 1917 and green book. green book and first man and the post. But like, those are not DreamWorks films. Those are mostly universal. Uh, movies. You'll see the name in the title credits, but I don't think you see the logo anymore. You might no. see the Amblin logo. Right. I, that I think that's right. I think that's right. So yeah, one of these days I want to like, just fully like read all the available articles and literature on, uh, what happened to DreamWorks? <laughs> the collapse of DreamWorks. Yeah, adventures. because it's a really, it's a really kind of fa- fascinating story. I do, I do think I have a book about it, but I'm not sure how, how far into the future or whatever the present, I guess, um, it goes. But yeah, so, but like this, I mean, like this is why this movie didn't get a release. It's maybe a more boring answer for this, and why, like, obviously, it's an Oscar failure is because it was the most afterthought product that the dying DreamWorks had at the time. And they just put no effort into it, probably because they didn't, they couldn't. It's it's interesting to me still that there wasn't that much effort because this is like a notoriously, like the best actress year that a lot of people talk about as being one of the worst or one of the least competitive. Um, this is the so year like, that Reese Witherspoon wins for Walk the Line. She beats Felicity Huffman for Transamerica, Charlize Theron for North Country, Kira Knightley for Pride and Prejudice, and Judy Dench for Mrs. Henderson Presents. Yes. Um, yeah, and I think, ultimately, I don't know if there's a world where Julianne Moore, for the prize winner of Defiance, Ohio... Um, gets an oscar nomination for this but like i kind of disagree okay i mean like i understand the logic that says she probably wouldn't have been nominated for it because this is a very like heartwarming low-key movie but i think if it's if there's an actual push of this movie to get it into theaters and audiences and an actual like campaign and it's not just like we awards watchers who've been knowing that this movie was coming for a while and then it just kind of gets a non-release by its studio. Yeah. I think if if it's if it has a completely different release pattern and at this point in Julianne Moore's career where she is already seen as an overdue actress, I think she is just like locked into the season from the beginning and like isn't a threat to win, but is nominated because yeah. she has that status, right? Against things like, you know, Judy Dench and Mrs. Henderson Presents, which, like, Judy Dench is absolutely an Oscar favorite during this era, but, like... See, I think Judy Dench, though, that's the same logic, which is she's Judy Dench. And so I think that th- that's the logic you would use for Prize Winner Defiance Ohio, where it's just, like, she's Julianne Moore. Like, you know what I mean? Like, she would sort of ride in on the strength of her reputation. But, like, whereas someone like Kira Knightley, I think, came ahead with that nomination where it's like, originally she wasn't fully predicted for the season. Right. Like, gets in through the strength of, like, passion for that performance in a less competitive year. Right. Although, ultimately, I think Kira Knightley's performance and Pride and Prejudice in general are both better than prize winner defines Ohio. So I'm 
glad. No, I mean, I agree yeah. with that. I yeah. I just think no, I, there's yeah. room for somebody who has a status of like overdue sure. in what is seen in a season like this. Because the other two performances, if like we think that Kira Knightley gets based in on strength and like obviously the heat was Reese Witherspoon and Felicity Huffman, unfortunately, that season, like yeah. Charlize Theron already has her Oscar. Yeah. Judy Dench already has her Oscar. Right. right. And I think it also, it's just instructive as to how a an independent film like this without any kind of sort of undergirding of support by the studio is lost like there's just mm-hmm. there's just no way and so and again what you end up with is a film that barely ever gets even released into theaters and and you wonder because Jane Anderson the the writer and director her success her sort of reputation at this point in her career was in the realm of tv movies for hbo and showtime where she had done the alleged the was is the positively true adventures of the alleged texas cheerleader murdering mom if i'm getting that entire title right i'm very proud of myself um the the holly (laughs) hunter the holly hunter tv movie about the the woman who uh arranged to have her daughter's cheerleading competition killed, right? That was the that was the story she had done. Eat your heart out, Operation Varsity Blues. Right, exactly. She had done a film for Showtime called The Baby Dance that I think was based on her play um, that starred, I only know of it because I've watched old Golden Globes clips and Emmys clips, and it was uh, a nominee. <laughs> Stockard Channing and Laura Dern were both in that. Stockard Channing, I believe, got Emmy and Golden Globe nominations for The Baby Dance. Um, she did a film for HBO called Normal, where Jessica Lange and Tom Wilkinson are married, and Tom Wilkinson uh, comes out as transgender, and I can't imagine watching it again today and sort of dealing with the landmines that i mean maybe it was ahead of its time mm-hmm. i don't know um but i remember she it, also did the if these walls could talk to segment with vanessa redgrave that got vanessa redgrave an emmy uh yes the 1961 segment of uh, if these walls could talk to where vanessa redgrave and marion seldes are a long time couple and Marion Seldes uh, has a stroke and is hospitalized and Vanessa Redgrave isn't allowed to see her and then she dies and she ends up like losing the house that they shared because the house was not in her name and the Paul Giamatti and Elizabeth Perkins play the like relatives who like don't know that they were a couple and are also like very very sort of you know un sympathetic um people actually vanessa redgrave's character in that was i believed i believe named ellie because jane anderson's uh aunt um real life aunt who was a who was an artist i believe and a lesbian uh was named ellie so that was a nice little touch there you go um yeah she had also done uh when billy beat bobby the uh, another uh holly hunter television film where she played billy jean king so jane anderson's career by this point was in doing sort of these tv movies and i do wonder if i mean if the prize winner of defiance ohio had been an hbo movie at least people would have seen it and you know maybe that leads to you know emmy nominations or whatever for julianne moore um who had or would have her 
No, not yet, I guess, because... Game Change wouldn't be till later. Um, yeah. She gets her Emmy for playing Sarah Palin in Game Change. Um, but Jane Anderson's incredibly prolific in terms of her television career of directing and writing. Oh, yeah. She wrote uh, a Mad Men episode. She did... Um, well, she wrote The Wife the most recently. Your, uh, your beloved The Wife. Um, I don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> uh, yeah, she wrote for the Wonder Years. She wrote for uh, um, she, and also after after Prize Winner Defiance Ohio, well after actually, she did um the miniseries Olive Kittredge. She uh, wrote has an Emmy for that it. and has an Emmy for that. So a, a miniseries that I always meant to watch and never did. Um, it's good. I know. I hear. I, it's real good. I, I absolutely believe it. She wrote for the Facts of Life also, which is amazing. She wrote several episodes for the Facts of Life. So yeah, Jane Anderson's a really interesting um, character, and it's sort of a bummer that her one big sort of writer director effort in feature filmmaking was never given a release. Essentially, um, and it's a very cute movie. I really did uh, enjoy myself watching this movie. I mean, it's it's a good. I mean, I wish more people had seen it. Like, I can't, I can't say it's one of the greatest, th- like the greatest movies we've even done on this podcast. But it's like it's a good movie, and especially for the amount of people who have probably seen it. It's... Oh yeah. I also feel like I wonder if because all of DreamWorks's other properties, you know, were done in part, were released in partnership at this point with other distributors or studios, and. You wonder if this one could have had like a partnership with even you know one of the independents like Focus or something. Yeah. Or like you even mentioned HBO. If at the bare minimum more people could have seen this. Yeah. So this movie gets two award nominations in total. One of which is a Golden Satellites nomination for Outstanding Actress in a Motion Picture. They characterize it as drama, which is interesting, because I could have seen the world in which the Golden Globes had called it a comedy. Mm-hmm. Um, she gets So she's one of six nominees. Have you looked at this? Can I, can I make you guess? I haven't. It's the Satellites, so I imagine it's her and the other people that are also in the season. Is there anything else that's... So, crazy? all right, here's what I'll do. I'll say two of them were Oscar nominees. Okay, so, um, well, I mean, how was how was Reese categorized? Was that a musical? Yeah, that was a musical, but maybe they called it a drama. Nope. Reese is in. Okay, Reese so they is call- a musical comedy. Uh, Felicity Huffman and Charlize Theron, probably. Felicity Huffman and Charlize Theron were both uh, your your Oscar nominees. Were also satellite nominees in this category. Felicity Huffman won. Okay, one of them was a Golden Globe nominee for drama, but not an Oscar nominee. Even though her movie... It, sorry, guess? Her movie was an Oscar success. Is it Zhi Zhang? It is Zhi Zhang for Memoirs of a Geisha. Yes, exactly. I guess I didn't need to give you that second part of the hint. Um, <laughs> very good. Okay, one of them is in a film that we have covered on this podcast that we love. Oh, that was from 05. That was a Golden Globe nominee, but not for her. Huh. That we love. Yes, we both love this movie. It can't be The Family Stone. I don't think we both love that movie. It's not The Family Stone, although I do love The Family Stone. Oh, is it In Her Shoes? Yes. Cameron Diaz? No. Shirley MacLaine? 
No. They said Tony Collette? Yeah, Tony Collette. Oh, that's shoes. cool. Tony Collette was the one who was getting the the best actress push whatever. Right. Well, Shirley MacLaine I thought was like didn't somebody give her an actress nomination? I don't know. She definitely got a supporting actress nomination at the Globes. Mm. All right. And so the sixth one is someone who has never been nominated for an Oscar, although it's kind of puzzling that it's never happened. Um for a film that stars a shit ton of people. Like the poster is just a list of one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven, twelve, thirteen, fourteen, fifteen, sixteen, seventeen, eighteen, nineteen, in twenty 05. names. Twenty, 20 names. names in O five. It's maybe an anthology. Hold on. So it's not Crash then. <laughs> it's not Crash. No. Is this Paris I Love You? Is that no, okay? it's not that kind of. Uh, no, it's not that. Um, let me look up this movie really quickly. I've definitely heard of it. Um, it's from a writer director who had done um, indie films, but he also found success with uh, uh, with TV stuff. But like his indie films are all these kinds of things where it's just like this giant ensemble interlinked. 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 Cells. Cells. Interlinked. Interlinked. Uh, stories. It's gotta be like Walter Saez, right? It's not. Or Rodrigo Garcia. It is. Is it like Casa de los Babies? <laughs> no, that was John Sales. Okay. Um, but it's like that. It's a movie like that. It's what was not, his movie called? It's, it's, it's interrelated stories. Sorry, I almost gave it away. Um, it is a number of interrelated stories. Um, I'm trying to think of who are the actresses in Rodrigo Garcia movies. It's like Edie Falco. I will give um, you, I will give you the cast list. Uh, okay. So um, Holly Hunter, Amy Brenneman, Sissy Spacek, Glenn Close, Kathy Baker. Things Amanda you can tell Seifert. just by looking at her. Nope. But it's like literally it. it's, it's his other <laughs> movie. That's just like that. <laughs> It's his other movie that's exactly like that. Lisa Gay Hamilton, Molly Parker, Jason Isaacs, Ian McShane, Mary Kay Place, Aiden Quinn. Um, who from the poster am I missing? I said Kathy I, it's Baker. It's like, it's a two word. I, I can see the poster. Dakota the poster Fanning. Is like a list of names and it's yep. like gold. Um, yes. Yeah. It's two words are in the title. It is. One of the words is a number. Nine Lives. Nine Lives. Rodrigo Garcia's Nine Lives. So who's the nominee from it? Any guess? Did you? Well, I can't even it's not one of the name. ones that I named. I left is this person off. Is it Kathy Baker? Nope. She's in it, but it is not Kathy Baker. She's done movies of his. It is somebody who, at the time, was using her married name, and now she's lopped off the... Uh, Robin Wright. Robin Wright. The former Robin Wright Penn, exactly. Yes, Robin Wright Penn for Nine Lives is a Golden Satellite nominee uh, that year. Yes. My memory always says that she was double nominated with Sally Field for Forrest Gump, and I am always wrong. Because they were at the SAG Awards that year, I'm pretty sure. And then neither one of them got an Oscar nomination. I thought Sally Field was on. No, no, nope. she wasn't. She was not. She only her only Oscar loss has come for Lincoln. Like before Lincoln, yeah. she was two for two at the Oscars. Um, so the other award 
that uh, that was a mere nomination for Julianne Moore. It also won an award at the Women Film Critics Circle Awards for Best Movie by a Woman. So Best Film Made by a Woman. Uh, It doesn't list the other nominees. And I remember being like kind of, and I say I remember, I mean an hour ago when I heard this fact, um, (laughs) sort of raised an eyebrow at the idea of just like, this was the best movie made by a woman. And then I went and looked at the list of uh, American films released in 2005, and it is like this in north country it's staggering how no movies made by women were this year and just like and and the few that were were like kind of low watermarks were like there was a nora efron movie in 2005 but it was bewitched there was a karen kusama movie in 2005 but it was eon flux uh susan stroman's the producers which like you know got golden globe nominations but like was essentially not very well received relative to the um the I mean, stage this production movie's better than any of those movies exactly um. so right so your only other competition really nikki caro's north country which i'm kind of surprised didn't win because it was a thing in in award season um catherine hardwick directed lords of dogtown that year which i remember some people liked uh which i saw but i don't remember very much of i just remember heath ledger being in it and then uh angela robinson directed two films that were released in 2005 one of which is yes herbie fully loaded but the other one is deb's which i've never seen before oh there's there's a stands for deb's on there's a cult of deb's right i I looked up and it was like very poorly reviewed at the time it's like a 40 percent rotten tomatoes this movie is rotten on rotten tomatoes stupid yeah um, but I know that there is a cult of Debs, and every time I read about what Debs is, I want to watch it. And Angela Robinson, I, of course, really like because she directed Professor Marston and the Wonder Women a few years ago, which I saw at Toronto yeah, she and was. really enjoyed. So, um, so yeah, honestly, maybe Justice for Debs, or maybe like Jane Anderson got the prize that she deserved for Best Movie Made by a Woman in 2005. But like, it's shocking that it's literally, you could... If you had a couple extra fingers on one hand, you could count them on one hand. How many films in 2005 were directed by women and released in the United States? It's just galling. I don't know. I mean, I, to, to be surprised that that was a thing is probably disingenuous of me. But just like it's it's a reminder that like we've, you know, for as long as far as we still have to go, we've come a long way in terms of, you know, films directed by women right now. Because 2005 was not that long ago. No. And it was a wasteland. So, yeah. So those are the only um, the only prizes uh, that prize winner of Defiance Ohio came in with. It's too bad they couldn't have won, you know, a Frigidaire or something uh, for any of these things. It would have been thematically appropriate. A trip to New York City. Okay. She never takes that trip to New York City with her son, right? Because the one kid is just like, Mommy, please don't go. Leave us with... That's apparently one of the things that's inaccurate about the movie is they did actually go on that trip, which like I I kind of wish we could have seen that in the movie because like you get it mostly with tough, but you do also get it with the sense of some of the other children, too, or the movie at least tries to, you know, establish that she had a personal connection to each of her children because like it's different when you're watching it in a movie and it's like a little over 90 minutes long where it's like most of these scenes are all of these kids together right yeah. but it does seem to like 
take the chance when it can to let you know that she did actually have a like one on one connection with each of her child. And it right. wasn't just like she has the know, scene with the one in the car. The one gets busted. Maybe it's the same one who gets for busted stealing, for stealing. Yeah. Um, the other one who was going to be the one who was going to take the trip to New York with her has that scene where he's like arguing with his father over who sent in the entry that won that won them like two free or a free tank of gas. It's literally like the stakes are that low. Um, and the one is always crying. Barb. Barb seems to be always mm-hmm. crying. The two get signed by the Detroit Tigers to play baseball. That was the other thing that I thought of is just like, wow, like baseball in the 1950s before they allowed black players in major league baseball. It was just like, you could just be like a pretty good, you know, white baseball player from defiance, Ohio. And like you and your brother could just get signed on to play. Cause like they needed baseball players, I guess. Um, that was, and, and then the oldest one leaves to go become a nurse. Mm-hmm. Goes to nursing school. Right. So, yeah, I think you're right. I think for a a film that could have easily just sort of allowed those children to be like a faceless horde, um, does a good job uh, individualizing them in some ways. Well, and not just a faceless horde to us in the audience, but for what our perception of Evelyn is, it's like, it's like, she's never just like my children all the time. It's, you know, she she does have a relationship with each of them individually. That one little kid who steals all the flower buds and drops them at her feet. And that's why they can't go to... um, Oh, that's the first time she gets thwarted going to see Mm -hmm. the Affidaisies, is um, she has to make amends with the neighborhood ladies for her kid, like, stealing everybody's priceless tulip bulbs. Once again, the tulip trade becomes important in a This Had Oscar Buzz movie. I'm just saying. (laughs) Yes, the tulip trade. He he is the natural extension of tulip fever. Yes, Um, he had, that's why he did that. He was struck with a serious bout of tulip fever. That kid arrives to like give these flowers to his mother and it is a pile of tulips more like that are like more density than he is there are it is a bigger pile of flowers than this child is and it's not just you can't tell me that neighbor lady didn't see this happening what was she so busy doing i don't know maybe she couldn't have stopped him maybe he's the great cat burglar of tulip buds that he just sort of like snatched and ran they weren't all from her like they were from he said he got them from like he rattled off like three or four different neighbor ladies she's the only one that's upset about it well, apparently they were $40 worth. I, I was very of... angry about this neighbor. <laughs> I don't know. I'm trying looking at nice it from the neighbor boy. lady's perspective. He is a nice little boy. And it's not like she like smacked the kid or anything, but like She's I would so have been fraught and it's like it's not a big deal. I don't know. I could see that. Listen, $40 for tulips back then was very expensive. I understand. I understand, but like it's an innocent child doing it. Not like, you know, one I of think the that, grown children or the drunken father destroying this woman's flowers. Okay, but if you're the neighbors to this family, and we all, of course, love Julianne Moore, and it's the same one who, like, took Julianne Moore to the hospital that one time. So, like, clearly, like, she's sympathetic to Julianne Moore. But, like, if there's this family of Ted kids on the block and their father is a drunken lout who, like, is getting the cops called on him uh, on occasion... I have a feeling that your sympathies towards this horde of children when they act out are probably not going to be high. 
I don't care. <laughs> I am shit. team. I am team neighbor lady. Don't get away from my fucking flowers. I am team. It's their flowers. He didn't crap on your lawn. Like he probably also crapped on her lawn though. Maybe he should have. <laughs> Give her something to be upset about. Um, we don't talk weirdly. We don't talk a lot about Julianne Moore enough on this podcast. No, it's only I think our third or fourth Julianne Hannibal, Moore Hannibal, Crazy Stupid Love, Hannibal, Crazy Stoop, and and we just did, no, we almost did Map to the World, Map of the World when it was on the list. Oh no, wait, this is our fifth. No, it's our fourth. It's our fourth. I uh, maybe got it out of ourselves. Um, yeah, Hannibal, Crazy Stupid Love. And then Suburbicon. How could we forget Suburbicon? Ugh. And then Ugh. those were all done. Those were all in our first 40 episodes. Uh, and we haven't done any since Suburbicon, which was a long time ago. So we have had a a drought, a positive drought of Julianne Moore uh, movies. And I mean, she's I feel one like of our we favorites. make up for it by talking about still Alice a lot. But like truly <laughs> right. at this point in her career, she'd ha- she was considered overdue started with the nomination for boogie nights but had she'd already been like working up in the indie scene until then she has this massive 1999 where she gets nominated for end of the affair of all things maybe like with the exception of cookie's fortune the one we talk about the least but it's the one Um, that had the lead role so i think that's why right was probably close to getting double nominated that year because of magnolia yeah Yep. Does get the double nomination in 02 for Far From Heaven and The Hours. Probably canceled each other out. Yeah. But then also, like, the Chicago of that year. We've talked about that year before. Yes. Many and then, times. like, this is the She's first, in an interesting like, era at this point in 2005 where mm-hmm. she had – she was sort of riding high in esteem – by the end of 2002, by that sort of double nomination. And then uh, she makes a film called The Laws of Attraction with her and Pierce Brosnan. That is this kind of romantic comedy. They're sort of their rival attorneys, but, you know, they love each other and blah, blah, blah. And it's And it never, it doesn't do what it needs to do. And then she's also in... Um, Wait, when does... The oh, no. Evolution Rotten's was that before same this. Year. Evolution and was 2001. Right. The Forgotten is also in 2004, which I had such high hopes for The Forgotten. I was so Me hyped for this movie. Too. I was so hyped for this movie. And the twist of what's happening in this movie um, gets delivered in such a ridiculous way i'm almost tempted to like tell everybody i know to go and watch the forgotten and like let's have a discussion about it because like it's one of those things that i think it's a device that a lot of movies end up using nowadays especially where what's happening ends up being like this whole other like thing where like they're they're essentially in this like alien bell jar and getting like, it's sort of what dark city ends up being kind of right. Mm -hmm. Um, But it gets, it gets revealed 
with some really wild fucking visuals. Like at one point, Alfred Woodard just gets sucked up into the sky. sky. (laughs) Like there was like, remember in Spaceballs when they have the, the spaceship turns into the maid with the vacuum cleaner and it sucks all the air out of the planet. It literally is Alfred Woodard getting sucked into an invisible vacuum cleaner. It is. That should honestly be a gif, a reaction gif. Um, oh, I've seen it used as a like me, gift. me exiting the discourse. Even know what it's from? Yeah, like me running away from the discourse or whatever, and it's just like <laughs> Alfred Woodard being like, just gone, absolutely. <laughs> when there's disca- discourse on the TL, bananas. Yeah, make that happen more, Chris. I'm I'm counting on you. Do All that right, again we, soon. we will use it. We will use it. And then um, her other 2005 movie besides Prize Winner of Defiance, Ohio, and I'm not counting her. Uh, cameo in the naked brothers band the movie although i do have to say now that i've watched shiva baby um polly <laughs> draper polly draper who essentially like created the naked brothers band as like a vehicle for her t- two children uh nat wolf and alex wolf who now are both uh, actors and and alex wolf is about to become old in old so i'm super psyched for that but polly draper fucking rules in shiva baby and like anything that she has ever been in contact with i now officially am in approval of because she's so fucking funny in that movie um you were gonna say the other 2005 movie which i don't think was actually oh i was gonna give you a chance to just talk about shiva baby for a second because i have oh no shiva baby rules you guys can rent it on vod it's great um it's i saw it in the theater it was playing at the quad here i was so happy that i was able to see it in the theater it was so great uh yeah the other did you have a crowd because i would love to see that wild movie with a crowd i did i saw it with a crowd and then i saw it with my friend robert who was dying my friend robert who is jewish and i am not jewish but i was very glad that i was able to see oh, that's it. the perfect person to see that movie with yeah see it with see it with one of your best jewish friends because like they will uh appreciate it on a level and you someone who's attuned to what not. the humor of that movie is yeah um it's still super fucking funny every single like every 10 seconds there's another moment where you're just like dying it's so good anyway um, um but uh, her husband, Bart Frenlich's movie, Trust the Man, which I've seen, and it's not the greatest rom-com, but I enjoyed my time with it. Oh, I despised it. I was that I know, was a movie. Hated it the song, but there's like, so much talent in that movie. It's Julianne Moore, and it's Billy Crudup, and it's Maggie Gyllenhaal, and it's like also Ellen Barkins in that movie. Like, there's so much talent. Like how- Julianne Moore's best friend. I thought they were really, really close friends. Who? Ellen Barkin and Julianne Moore. Wait, is that true? That's amazing. Yeah, they're friends. This is like how I found out that uh, Marissa Tomei and Lisa Bonet were such good friends when they did A Different World, that Marissa Tomei is Zoe Kravitz's godmother. Amazing. Right? I love that shit. I fucking love that shit. I love now knowing that Julianne Moore and Ellen Barkin are best friends. Um, This brings us to another small point that I wanted to make, and like... I think there was some like expectation of like prize winner of defiance Ohio when it finally arrives is like a non entity, but freedom land was supposed to come out in this season. Yes. And it gets pushed to February until the very last minute. And yep. I think uh, don't quote me on this. Cause I couldn't find it in the Wayback machine, but I'm positive. It was either rumored for AFI or actually slated for AFI and oh, taken wow. off. And if you've seen Freedom Land, you know why. Yeah, Freedom <laughs> Land isn't is good. That movie is abhorrent. Abhorrent. It is offensive. 
Um, I still think maybe her worst performance. I still think Edie Falco is good in that movie, but yes, uh, Freedom Land is a bad film, and that's why I got pushed to February. Um, yeah, so this is sort of it's a rough patch in her career, I would say, and she doesn't really like. She's in Children of Men, which is a masterpiece, but her role in that movie is truncated. And I think it allows the things like when she's in the Nicolas Cage movie next, or when she's, you know, in a movie like Blindness that doesn't go anywhere, or Savage Grace that doesn't go anywhere. No, none of those things are her fault. But what I'm saying is it all sort of adds up to this sense that when she gets that role in 2009 in A Single Man, that sort of supporting role, it felt like, even though it wasn't a comeback necessarily, it had that feel to it because it was just like, oh, we're nominating Julianne Moore for things again now. Like, she didn't get an Oscar nomination, but she came incredibly close. She got a Golden Globe nomination for that. And it felt like Julianne Moore had sort of come back to us in a way. Mm -hmm. Am I wrong? No, totally. That was the one that kind of brought it back. And, like, during this time, yes, she's doing movies that, like, she's just getting paid. We've had the conversation, and it sucks about, like, what happens to actresses of a certain age. But she's also focusing on being a mom, too. Like, at this point, she was only taking jobs that could either be in the city or would be in, like, the summertime when, you know, her kids weren't in school. So, like, so that what was you're saying is that... Her deciding to do to be a voice in Eagle Eye is essentially her entering a twenty-five word jingle contest for Dr. Pepper. Like that's sort of the. Can we talk about how I saw Eagle Eye because I recognized her voice from the trailer? I was like, Julianne Moore. I will be seeing that movie. <laughs> I I don't remember hearing that voice in the trailer, but when I saw Eagle Eye, I pegged her voice immediately and was so proud of myself. Because you know how I can sometimes be plagued by knowing I know who a voice is, but not really putting able to, being able to put my finger on it. I was thrilled with myself that I called Julianne Moore's <laughs> voice right away in Eagle Eye. But then she never, but then you sort of expect like, oh, it's Julianne Moore's voice. Obviously, she's going to like show up by the end of this movie. Nuh-uh, bitch, never. Like, absolutely never. Anyway. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so that's sort of what she was doing uh, to, you know, make ends meet while she was raising her kids. We love Julianne Moore. And we were very happy to uh, get a chance to talk about her again. Yeah. She might be my favorite actress, too. I, mean, I, have, I, think I haven't really sat Uper down is the greatest it. living, but like I have, I have a long-standing uh, relationship with uh, putting myself in the Julianne Moore camp. And I, I, she's, I can't be wavering. She's on that list of people who I would just love to have a 45-minute chat over coffee with. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Just like, just to have a long, I feel like she would have a ton of really interesting things to say. And yeah, so she's fantastic. Any other odds and ends about the prize winner of Defiance Ohio before we wanted to move on to the IMDb game? Um... I don't know. I'm, I I can't imagine that I would come up with a good jingle, good enough jingle. So I am uh, uh, very impressed by Evelyn Ryan. If you had won one of the one of the notes that I have, by the way, before I get to if you had won, um, I wrote down to have Julianne Moore and Laura Linney in the same movie and not have either one of them ever really cry is. You mean I'm, Laura Dern? 
Well, Laura Dern doesn't. Julianne Moore, if she cries, she cries very sort of like briefly, right? She doesn't have like a big Julianne Moore cry in this movie. And I, think I feel she like she starts crying and leaves the room. At right. The point of this. But like those two women are like two of the most demonstrative criers in cinema. I feel like they really <laughs> put their whole ass into it when they put it, when they decide to cry. And so to have a movie where neither one of them does that is the up- upset of the century as far as I'm concerned. Um, but my other question to you. So I want to return to our favorite scene, the shopping spree. Oh. What would your grocery store strategy? We talked about your strategy as a Toys R Us shopping spree. What would your supermarket sweep uh, 10 minutes in just your regular neighborhood supermarket? What would your strategy? So just what would like you a go Kroger, for? a Chinese yes, Eagle, exactly. not like, you know, fancy. Not fancy Whole Foods, stuff. not Trader Joe's. No, 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 no. At TJ's, it would be like, I would just get all of the artisanal crackers. Well, TJ's, like Trader Joe's shopping spree, Trader Joe's is almost, almost feels like it was created for that purpose, right? Because everything in Trader Joe's, my whole thing about Trader Joe's is that it's functionally useless to go shopping there for like any kind of like needs. Trader Joe's is only there for like, I want something weird to snack on. I want something sort of indulgent to snack on. That's the only stuff that I feel like I get, I get good use of out of Trader Joe's. It's just like, oh, what is this? Like fancy bagel chips or like, what is this? Just some sort of like, caramel corn that is like mm-hmm. taken to the next level like that kind of a thing you can't get like butter like exactly the, i'm not gonna the, go like, for a least... loaf of bread to trader joe's i don't even right. know where that like, is you at can't trader get joe's. regular fruit it's all grown out of like a water nymph's hole or something it's yes a water nymph's hole thank you for that imagery christopher um Yes, the, the it's whole, all the that. The water nymph comes out of and like... It's all that. It's just like, it's fancy breadsticks. It's uh, baby, it's like little tiny quiches. It's all that sort of stuff. Where like, like, I remember the one time my sister came to town and I just like, I'm like, oh, this is what I'm doing. I'm going to Trader Joe's and I'm just like snacking it up. And it's just like, I came home with just like two bags You come full home of with like, nothing. With you nothing you, you with need. with a million things and they amount to nothing. Nothing that you need, but everything that you want in just terms of just like snack shit but anyway no you're at a kroger you're at a you're at a you know a regular little supermarket what are your priorities for a shopping spree um i uh 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 uh, i'm just gonna say it i'm going booze first i'm going to the liquor store the wine store Ah, inside the grocery store you're very smart uh and then i think i'm just filling it up with the meat counter because i'm not gonna get like i'm a practical person so like i'm not gonna get like box stuff that already costs you know a buck fifty two fifty whatever i'm getting right. expensive meat right and especially if you had a big huge especially if freezer. i won a giant freezer in yeah. a jingle contest right exactly the smart the smart money there was right a lot of stuff from the meat counter that you could then freeze uh i love the lady who decided to just go for like the belgian chocolates i was like yes lady like you have actually a yeah. really good idea that might be my last stop or something also but like things that are like more expensive than you like like i would get a bunch of jars of macadamia nuts because they're so expensive and i love to put them in cookies and whatnot but like mm-hmm. they are fucking pricey so like things like that like expensive uh expensive nuts or like expensive cereal that's like six dollars a box. Yes, the really indulgent sort of like expensive cereal, that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. Totally. 
yeah, I think we're on. I think we're on the same page with that. Also, also expensive cheeses. One of those, I mean, like I just like I'm I don't just, think I would be getting things that I've never tried before, and maybe that's foolish of me, but I would just be like, no, but like every a, kind of a steak, big hunk of like aged gouda that is like seventeen dollars or whatever. That's what's going in my in my cart for a shopping spree. One of those things, those things that you always sort of like are gravitated to at the grocery store, and then you pick it up and you look at the price tag, and you're like, that's why I never get this because it's so <laughs> expensive. That kind of a thing. Yeah. All right. I like your strategy. Want to do the IMDb game? Yeah, guys. Every week we end our episodes with the IMDb game where we challenge each other with an actor or actress to try to guess the top four titles that IMDb says they are most known for. If any of these titles are television, voiceover performances, or non-acting credits, we'll mention that up front. After two wrong guesses, we get the remaining titles release years as a clue. And if that's not enough, it just becomes a free-for-all of hints, just like a shopping spree. Exactly. A shopping spree of hints is coming your way. Um, Chris, would you like to guess first or give first? Mm, I'll give first this week. All right, go for it. That's how I'm feeling. So I went into the 05 Best Actress race, and I chose one of the, uh, you know, shall we say, less competitive, less remembered nominations. Can't believe we haven't done this actress before in IMDb game. It's Judy Dench, old uh, Dencheronomy. It's so funny. I've gone back to doing old Deuteronomy because it does sound like we're saying Jew, but Dentureonomy also sounds like we're making fun of her for having dentures. So I go back and I now, <laughs> I now prefer uh, old Deuteronomy. But yes, either way, it's problematic. But uh, I've I've picked my poison here. We've never done Judy Dench, huh? We haven't. She's one of those people. You've now. I feel like you're into a run of giving me the classics and the challenge isn't remembering what movies they were in, but trying to prioritize which of her many roles. Cause you gave me streep recently. And I really don't one. think that Judy Dench is, I mean, I'm not, I'm just saying not looking at these answers. I'm saying it's difficult. I'm just saying on its face, Judy Dench is difficult because there's a billion movies, right? She's in so many movies. She works so often. All right. I think the obvious. I think the no-brainer here is Shakespeare in Love. Shakespeare in Love, her right. Oscar win. All right, now it gets difficult. Okay, like, is she in this for any of the Bond movies that she's in? She's in so many Bond movies, but trying to pick out which one is tough. Does it matter? That her role in Skyfall is, like, the most substantive of all of her appearances in James Bond movies? Like, does that matter for IMDb algorithm purposes? Maybe not. Like, it doesn't really... She probably doesn't go any higher on the on the cast list because of that. So I'm going to put a pin in that. Um, what else? Like, shock a lot? Probably not. Oh, um... Honestly, Philomena. No. Damn it. That movie was momentarily popular. All right, Judy. That's the movie that I always feel weirdly defensive of because I feel like everybody (laughs) kind of looks down their nose at it like it's some boring whatever movie. But I think on like the terms that movie's trying to do, I think it's a good movie. It's okay. I don't I don't hate it. I don't not like Philomena. Um don't come at 
don't come at me uh, the real Philomena Lee. Um, I don't need that kind of heat. Okay, Judy... future guest uh, on an episode the real <gasps> Philomena Lee, but not about Philomena. Obviously, no. It would have to obviously. be. What would we talk to the real Philomena? Like the Magdalene sisters? Uh, whatever the real Philomena, Philomena Lee wants to do. That's true. Do. That's true. Maybe she wants to. You she know, she could come on and want to do an episode on Burnt for all we. <laughs> the real Philomena Lee can't get enough of Burnt. Okay. Um, I'm just gonna say I'm gonna say Skyfall. Skyfall is correct. Okay. Skyfall, I feel like is probably you were like the obvious answer, Shakespeare in Love. I thought you were gonna say Skyfall. Like Skyfall. She maybe has like an and credit. I feel like Ray Fiennes might have an and credit in that movie. But if she doesn't, I would believe her to be maybe not second build because of Javier Bardem, but third build. Third build at worst. Yeah. And she had like major award nominations for that movie. But she's also probably third build in like Tomorrow Never Dies. You know what I mean? She's probably the and credit for those movies. Yeah, that's that's the yeah. There you go. Okay. Anyway. Um I'm hoping that it's not just two other James Bond movies. I feel like I feel like you would have you wouldn't have uh, chosen it if it was that rote. Okay, um, I'm trying to go through her other Oscar nominations, and if that notes on a scandal, her best performance notes on a scandal. Yeah, good for you, IMDb. Okay, one more, one more. I think we can blame that entirely on gay people. Gay people get that movie. <laughs> When you like, I saw we can blame some, a lot like, of things some straight critics on, on Twitter shitting on notes on a scandal lately. I'm like, okay, Who? you don't get what that. I, I, I won't say. Okay. but like, it was like they Tell were like, oh, that like boring old like <gasps> stuffy Fuck movie, off. and I'm like, have you seen Notes on a Scandal? Do I need to play uh, the Here again, I Am scene friends. for you once again? Do I need to play the part where Kate Blanchett calls? Judy Someone miserable has died. Uh, anyway. Yeah, um, that's right. Kate Blanchett does call her a sad virgin. She no does problem. call her a sad virgin. She sure does. Okay. One more Judy Dench movie. It's not going to be Ladies in Lavender, unfortunately. You only have one oh, wrong answer. The Best Exotic Marigold Hotel. Best Exotic Marigold Hotel. Another go. movie to uh, ha- use for our theory that everyone on the poster has it in there. Yes. Known for. Yep. Yep. So, yeah, there's a lot of ways you could have gone with Judy. I probably... What was my wrong answer, Philomena? Honestly, I stand Philomena. by my wrong answer, but no. I that that's, that's the... I think that's the correct four. Good I think job. That's good. All right. Thank you. All right. For you, I obviously could not resist the siren pull of the chum scrubber to, to pick a... Uh, <laughs> not the chum scrubber. And we've already done Jamie Bell. And we can't do... Glenn Close, because she still only has one film in her known for, which is astounding and is one of the great uh, uh, weird things uh, in our entertainment culture. So our friends over at uh, Who Weekly recently uh, talked about the known for of Diana Agron. I need them to get on Diana Agron, also good in Shiva Baby, I should say. It's perfectly cast um, and gives a good performance but uh i need to uh the who weekly uh team to get behind the known for bryce dallas howard yeah, hers is just two right three oh, including 
gold. Three is almost worse than one. One, you feel like something's something's going on. Three feels Someone like they just like choice. they just lost interest after they were they got through three of them. Um, all right. So, whomst in the chum scrubber have you chosen? For me? So the chum scrubber has like every sort of young white male from that era, where it was like Jamie Bell. Lou Taylor Pucci, Justin Chatwin, and the one that I'm going to give you, uh, who is the uh, the third in a line of uh, acting brothers, I'm going to give you Rory Culkin. Ah, yes, yes. Uh, the uh, youngest Culkin. The youngest Culkin. Uh, I'm going to take the wild leap that the chum scrubber is not there. Um, you Can Count on Me has to be there. You can count on me, which I rewatched recently. And he, I mean, he's just, you know, he's just a little kid. But he's so, like, every everything in that movie is wonderful. Most of these are going to be when he's a little kid. And his um, scenes in, with Ruffalo in that movie are so just wonderful. Just really, really wonderful. Anyway, yes. And not precious him. for it being. Right. He's, know, not cute, he's not cuting it up. Yeah, exactly. Um, signs has to be there. As the asthmatic uh, little brother. No, wait. He's the older brother of Abigail Breslin and Signs. Yes. Yes. Signs. Uh, I'm guessing Scream 4 is in that. Indeed. Scream 4. Very good. Yes. Uh, spoiler alert. One of the killers in Scream 4. Spoiler alert. Though yes. not the important killer. No. Um, now I'm stuck. Uh, because I'm thinking of things that he was even in. Um, I can't remember another movie that he's in. So this missing movie was not one where he plays like a younger version of one of his brothers, right? I think that happens in Igby Goes Down. It does. He's the 10 year old Igby in Igby Goes Down. No, it is not that. It's also not. uh, He's also uh, the young Richie Rich in uh, Richie Rich. So he plays both of his brothers' younger versions. Did that only happen twice? That had to have happened more. Um, I'll go through and I'll see if that happens again. But maybe only those two times they should cast him on succession but not as a relative just as like a friend of romans <laughs> someone stealing romans identity <gasps> yes do it um yeah i think that's we don't only need those any more guest stars on that show the casting announcement announcements have already you know nope more the merrier i'm in vaguely less excited about season three shut Calm up down, you shut up just give um, us the Roys. Give us the Roys killing each other. I cannot wait until they all go down in flames. All right. You're still missing. So the one that you are missing um, is an indie movie that got a little bit of attention. Probably got the same amount of attention, honestly, that the Chum Scrubber got. Um, but I think was better received, was definitely better received. It won... A Independent Spirit Award for oh. it won the uh, you know how they'll just do an ensemble award. Yeah, they do the Altman Prize now. Yeah, it wasn't called the Altman Prize then, but uh, it it won the ensemble prize and it also won the Cassavetes Award, which I believe is the best film made for under five hundred thousand um, dollars. 
Well, before you give me any more hints, I will just uh, sacrifice another answer and say oh, the right. chum scrubber so yeah. that I get too wrong. It's not the chum. Scrubber. Sorry, I was yeah. free for alling too early. No, yes. I mean like I I I it, I'm gonna t- it's gonna take some hints for me to get this. I think it played the Cannes fil- Film Festival, but I don't believe in competition. Like uncertain regard, or was it directly? Yeah, or, yeah, it wasn't probably. main competition, but it was in. Okay. Hold on. Was it a Sundance movie? Hold, please. I don't believe it was. Yes, sorry, it was. Okay. Sundance, Cannes, uh, what other film festivals? Those are the only major film festivals. Obviously, the Iceland International Film Festival. Obviously, the Stockholm International Film Festival. Uh, okay, so it's Sundance can ensemble movie because it won an ensemble prize. He's definitely the most um, recognizable sort of... He's the most enduring cast legacy from this ensemble, although one of the other ones was a sort of Nickelodeon star who was breaking out of his uh, Nickelodeon mold at that point. Who would then go on a few years after this movie to star in another sort of indie Sundance flash in the pan that uh, ended up being pretty well derided, I feel like. It definitely... Yeah. A former Nickelodeon star who made this movie and another movie that people hated. Yeah. Except at Sundance, it it felt like there was a a pocket of uh, enthusiasm for this movie. That movie, the, the, uh, the, the, you know, the one that I'm talking about there, is written and directed by a guy who went on to do a few uh, pretty well received movies after that anyway i'm I'm leading you far afield from uh okay <laughs> from the rory culkin film rory culkin film with a nickelodeon star yeah who are nickelodeon stars around the time that they would have made a movie well obviously not the naked brothers band stars nat and alex wolf because i uh right and them. not um not like uh zach efron or any of the zach efron was, know, disney. was disney I just pissed a ton of people off. Um, Okay, so the theme of this film was there was a lot of sort of aughts movies about teens. We talk about how the Chum Scrubber was like the epitome of aughts movies about teens where everybody's doing drugs. And this one, it's like... like teen suicide movie? It's not suicide, but it's like... Teen murder? What if bullying, but like we flip the script... What if, like, oh, oh, uh, they kill the bully? Yeah. Or they it's try to kill the bully. I don't know if they actually succeed. No, I've seen this movie. It's Mean Creek, it's, isn't it? It's Mean Creek. Yes. Forgot that Rory Culkin was in it, but no, there's a bully and... The bully is Josh Peck, right? kill the bully. Yes. Okay, Josh Peck is the Nickelodeon guy. That's the Nickelodeon guy. guy. Yes. They do kill him, because right, then they gotta cover it up. Yeah, they accidentally kill him yeah. by, like, drowning. They don't know he can't swim or something, or they accidentally 
like drown yes. in something. Yes. It's one I of those I remember it as yeah. being intense though. I don't know if it's a movie that would hold up. I remember it being pretty intense back then too. And I and I agree with you. I'm 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 equally uh Where did it play? It played Director's Fortnite at the Cannes Film Festival. Yeah. Written and directed sense. by Jacob Aaron Estes, who then went on to do a film called The Details in 2011 with Tobey Maguire and Laura Linney that I, like, vaguely remember. Um, That was sort of this, like, dark comedy. And then in 2019, directed a film called Don't Let Go with David Oyelowo and Storm Reed that I don't fully That movie remember. I know has some fans. Yeah? That also played Sundance. But yeah, this director didn't really end up capitalizing on Mean Creek the way you would have thought for it being the kind of success that it was for it, you know, playing directors Fortnite and winning, you know, Sundance or uh, uh, Mm -hmm. Independent Spirit Award prizes and stuff like that. But yeah, I remember Mean Creek being like a little bit of a thing uh, back then. Anyway, well done. Rory Culkin. Rory Culkin. Good job. Well done. And I think that's all. I think I think we've uh, we've closed the book on the prize winner of Defiance Ohio. Go check it out. I would say, my my recommendation is you go check it out. Watch um, this movie; it's nice. Yeah, exactly. All right, we liked it. That is our episode. If you want more of this had Oscar Buzz, you can check out the Tumblr at thishadoscarbuzz.tumblr.com. You should also follow our Twitter account at had underscore Oscar underscore Buzz. Chris, where can the listeners find you and your stuff? You can find more of me on Twitter and Letterboxd at Chris V File. That is F E I L. Yes, I am on Twitter at Joe Reed, Reed spelled R-E-I-D. I'm also on Letterboxd, uh, Joe Reed spelled the exact same way. We would like to thank Kyle Cummings for his fantastic artwork and Dave Gonzalez and Gavin Mevius for their technical guidance. Please remember to rate and review us on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher, wherever else you get podcasts, which includes Spotify. A five-star review in particular really helps us out with Apple Podcasts visibility. So tell that shitty milkman to buzz off because you're too busy writing us a 25-word gem of a review. That is all for this week, but we hope you'll be back next week for more Buzz. 